0: Welcome to another edition of Building Local Power. I'm John Farrell, co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. This week, we're talking about exposing the power of monopoly companies. David Pomerantz is the executive director of the Energy and Policy Institute, a national nonprofit organization that exposes how monopoly utility companies exercise outsized power in deciding our energy future. As a big fan of his work, I'm delighted to ask him to help us understand how utility companies have become so powerful, how they use this power, and what lessons we can learn from David's work to manage monopolies in the rest of the American economy? David, welcome to Building Local Power.
1: Thank you so much for having me, John.
0: Well, I have always really admired the work that you do. Uh, big follower on social media as you guys release more information about what utilities are up to. Your website is chock full of information about utility shenanigans, for lack of a better term. Um, but I want to help people understand a little bit about how the area in which you and I work uh, focused on energy is related to, but not quite the same as the rest of the economy. So, you know, we at ILSR talk a lot about monopoly power across the economy and banking and social media and and internet. Um, You focus on this utility sector, electric and gas utilities generally. Could you explain a little bit about how monopolies in energy are different from ones like in banking or social media?
1: I think one of the key ways that Uh, energy monopolies, electric monopolies are a little bit different is um, they are providing a service that we really can't live without in the modern economy. So just as an example, if you are fed up with Facebook's practices as a monopoly, you don't like some of their maybe political spending, uh, or you don't like things that that Facebook is doing to control the the market uh, of social media, you can always delete your account on Facebook with electricity, it's different. Everybody has to have electricity and they really only have one choice. Um, in many parts of the country, at least people only can buy electricity from a single provider that has been granted a monopoly by their state. Um, because of that, um, it's really important that those, those monopolies are you know, tightly regulated by, by the government to make sure that they're providing electricity at fair prices, to make sure that they're not doing too much harm to the environment or the climate. Uh, and unfortunately, these electric monopolies have over the course of the last century, while they've uh, had these monopolies over over the energy that they sell, they've also built political monopolies. And so in, in most states, the monopoly electric utilities are some of the most powerful political players in that state. Um, they control uh, many of the levers of government, um, almost like puppeteers. And that makes it really hard for them to be effectively regulated in the public interest.
0: Well, it's really helpful because I think many people don't realize that a lot of the monopolies we have, a lot of the big corporations kind of were built up through acquisitions and Uh, mergers and buyouts and, you know, competing with other businesses until they just got really big. Although, of course, as we also talk about the federal government and state governments has often have given them permission to grow large by approving those mergers, but at least they, they began by competing. And this is obviously different here. Um, So we know that in the energy business, you know, thanks to this description that utilities generally have minimal or no competition. uh, And obviously that could be very profitable for them. Uh, You sort of alluded to this already in terms of political power. Could you give us an example of how a utility can use that profitability and protection from competition to block competitors, to block uh, other folks from being able to compete in this market?
1: The example that's probably most in the news these days that your listeners might be most familiar with is how utilities have blocked their customers um, from uh, turning toward rooftop solar power. I should say... You know, historically, there was probably a time in the in the beginning of the last century where it actually did make sense for utilities to have um, monopolies over over parts of the electric grid. Certainly, over um, you know building the poles and wires as the electricity grid was building out. That those were places where it made sense for utilities to have monopolies, and even at times um, over the generation of electricity. Uh, When the grid was being built up in the early 20th century, and we were for the first time building these large power plants at scale, it made sense to give companies monopolies to do that. But now we're in a world in the 21st century where everything is totally different. And now having these companies build these massive power plants with huge risks of cost overruns, which, by the way, happen to be absolute killers for, for our climate. That's not only environmentally problematic, it's no longer the, the most cost-effective way to do things. And we have had this amazing technological revolution where customers have a host of new technologies at their fingertips that they can adopt. The, the most obvious one is rooftop solar, but there's also energy efficiency and ways that customers can you know control when they use electricity. Unfortunately, these, these incumbent um, big electric monopolies Um, They see all that as a threat. One great example of that is in the sunny state of Arizona, a a natural place for um, rooftop solar and local solar to grow really quickly. And, you know, starting about 10 years ago, it was growing really quickly. And that uh, became incredibly scary to a company called Arizona Public Service, which is um, the biggest investor owned monopoly electric utility in Arizona. APS is one of those companies, like I mentioned before, that has done an incredibly effective job at really buying up the entire political ecosystem of Arizona. Um, The governor of Arizona, many of the state's legislators, elements of of both parties, unfortunately, the Republican and Democratic parties of Arizona, and uh, APS's direct regulators, the Public Utility Commission in Arizona, are all. Uh, deeply indebted to the company's campaign contributions and the various ways that it has exerted influence over the state's political system. And when this solar threat started to rear its head and, and scare the executives at APS, a few years ago, they took action and they appealed to their regulators in the PUC called the Arizona Corporation Commission and asked them to change the way people pay their electricity rates in ways that would make rooftop solar less economic. It was very contentious, but because of the political dominance that this company enjoys, they were able to get that change through. And unfortunately we saw rooftop solar adoption rates really fall off a cliff after those changes happened. So that's one of those examples where unfortunately, you know, we have this amazing new technology um, in distributed solar. It can save people money on their bills. Um, it can help protect the environment and the climate by avoiding the need for these companies to build more polluting gas plants and, and um, you know, making it easier for them to shut down coal plants sooner. And um, as, as you know, John, and have done amazing work to document, it can help grow local economies. Um, but unfortunately, you know, there are these uh, very powerful companies who see that technology as a threat. And so they have done everything they can to stifle that competition to protect their the profit margin for um, their investors on Wall Street.
0: I was interested in you maybe giving a couple other examples so people can understand the full scope of this. So one of this is around competitive technology, but we also have issues with existing power plants, so old power plants that have been operating for a long time. Uh, And there's some pretty crazy stuff going down in Ohio right now uh around old power plants i was hoping you could explain a little bit there because there's a couple things i find interesting one is you have these large power plants that the utility is looking for subsidies for but you also have this funny layer of the market was competitive for a while like the state decided to make the marketplace more competitive and at first utilities really liked that and then as it actually became a competitive market and profit margins went down Now they seem to be going back and begging for monopoly protection again. Can you just describe a little bit about what's going on in Ohio for folks who might not be familiar?
1: I think you put that really well, John. You know, a lot of these companies um, like to talk about the value of competition and um, free markets until the free markets turn against them. And then um, pretty quickly, they start talking, you know, frankly, frankly, in ways that sound a lot more like socialism than than free market ideology um, or or sort of a command and control economy. And so that's really what's happened in Ohio. Um, There's a company called First Energy, uh, which has seen unbelievable financial struggles in recent years. It actually um, spun off part of itself, which filed for uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcy recently. The reason for its economic problems is that they made some big bets on types of of power generation, including um, burning coal and um, you know their existing nuclear power plants that turns out are no longer the cheapest way to make electricity. and And increasingly, it's not really even close. Um, you know they've been they've been beaten by gas and um, more recently are getting crushed, particularly in the Midwest, by wind energy. And then on top of all that, you know, the, the entire economy, and this and Ohio is certainly a part of this, is getting more efficient, which means people are using less electricity to do the same things, which is good. It saves homes and businesses money across the economy. Um, but it does mean that some of those existing power plants that companies like First Energy are running um, start coming under pressure. And so that's what's happened there. And, you know, First Energy is another company with a, a lot of political power. Um, it has contributed lots of money in the most recent gubernatorial election in Ohio. Um, the CEO of First Energy spent lavishly on the campaign and inauguration of the current governor of Ohio, who obviously has a lot of say over these matters. Um, and so now what First Energy is trying to do is get itself a bailout. So the company is trying to get a law passed in Ohio that would um, you know, essentially rob money from, its, from Ohioans electric bills every month to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars statewide that would just basically be a direct transfer of wealth from the people of Ohio to uh, First Energy. Now, nominally, that money is to keep a couple of nuclear plants online that are not doing well in the marketplace. But it's not clear that that company actually needs that money. You could also make the argument that, you know Ohio's chosen more of a market system for how electricity is produced and if those plants can't compete then they should be shut down and replaced with more competitive options but even if you believe that it makes sense to keep those plants alive um, you know it shouldn't really be done on the backs of, of customers um, you know that that's something that first energy shareholders could take on if they if they think that they want to keep those assets going um, and then the, the the whole situation gets much worse because once first energy kind of, you know, saw that opportunity to use its political influence to, to keep its plants open and in that kind of rent seeking behavior, there's basically been a pile on from some of the other incumbent players in the state. So now this policy, uh, which is, has passed one house of the Ohio state legislature, but, um, not the other yet. Um, it's called HB six in the Ohio house. Um, It's been expanded so that it would also bail out a large coal-burning facility, which is a major, major polluter for Ohio and really the entire region. And on top of that, to try to sweeten the deal for some legislators who have been trying to gut the policies that Ohio does have to encourage renewable energy and energy efficiency, the legislation would also kill those standards. They're not the strongest renewable energy or energy efficiency standards in the country, and um, hard right conservatives and the fossil fuel industry has been trying to gut those standards for several years now and failing but this is probably the most serious threat that they've seen and those standards frankly need to be much higher and stronger um it would be a shame to see them uh you know finally wiped out basically because these um polluting industries are trying to uh, protect their profits and it, it, it's really an incredible irony because the, you, you have these people who are, um, and these, the, the companies behind it, they are trying to use an argument against renewable energy and energy efficiency standards that says, well, they're mandates, you know, this is lefty control of the economy and we need more of a free market and, and making that free arg- market argument. And then literally at the exact same time out of the other side of their mouth, they're asking for a bailout for polluting nuclear and coal plants, which can't survive in the free market. So, you know, it's really a stunning bit of hypocrisy, but it, it it's one that unfortunately um, greased by a whole lot of political contributions and, um, you know, millions of dollars in lobbying that First Energy has spent over the last few months, they have had some traction with.
0: You know, one of the things that I just wanted to note for folks who are listening about the renewable energy and energy efficiency mandates is that um, especially with energy efficiency mandates, uh, these things save everybody money except for utility shareholders because it lowers the amount of energy that has to be produced on the system at large. So not only do they help individuals save money because that helps you know provide money for rebates for efficient appliances or for home insulation, but it also saves everybody money collectively by requiring less, as you said, polluting power plants on the grid. And renewable energy standards have been shown in multiple studies to generally save people money as well, because renewable energy has turned out to be incredibly inexpensive. And at this point, as you mentioned before, like wind power in the Midwest uh, is much cheaper than pretty much any fossil fuel alternative. So these are not only are they arguing against these in a very, uh, as you said, perverse way, because they're also asking for mandates to support polluting power plants. but these are they're also arguing against things that save everybody money. Um, the
1: only thing I would add is that for many decades, these companies and a whole bunch of conventional wisdom have tried to convince people that um, you know our environmental goals and our economic goals and what's good for consumers are in conflict somehow. And maybe once upon a time that was true. but it is certainly not true now in a place like Ohio. The companies who are trying to literally rob their customers, created a direct transfer of wealth, um, they're doing that so that they can keep polluting. And the policies that will reduce pollution and, and catalyze clean energy and energy efficiency, those are proven to save people money. Um, so no matter what perspective you come from, whether you're coming at it from a consumer rights perspective, an anti-monopoly perspective, Or uh, a climate or or environmental perspective, this uh, legislation that First Energy has been backing is a disaster.
0: So I wanted to actually clarify one thing here. We've talked about these monopoly companies having a lot of power, but one thing we haven't explained uh, just as thoroughly as maybe people might need is there are different kinds of electric utilities. Some of them are actually publicly owned by a city or they are member owned, like they're a cooperative ownership structure. One thing that's important to understand about electric utilities is that they are private companies. Uh, they are, you know, a lot of them are listed on a stock exchange, and they have shareholders. And a lot of the tension that we have here is actually about the interest, as you said, the interest for the shareholders, for example, in keeping open a polluting power plant, and the customers who don't see the financial benefit of their stock going up on Wall Street, but really are only going to see benefits as as they are reflected on energy bills. So. I want to use that to sort of pivot into this next question about how monopoly utilities are using their money to advocate against the interests of their customers. So that, you know, there's the legislative pieces like in Ohio or in Arizona, the regulatory pieces. But you also have something else that Energy and Policy Institute has been covering recently. Uh, It was called UARG, and I'm going to let you spell that out uh, and explain how utilities and their shareholders were using this group to undercut clean air and water for all Americans.
1: So UARG is the uh, Utility Air Regulatory Group, U-A-R-G, and um, if your listeners haven't heard of the Utility Air Regulatory Group, um, that would that would be very normal because uh, this is a group that has very deliberately kept a low profile over the last four decades that it's been in existence. So, you know, they don't have a website, they don't really have a, a headquarters that you can go visit. Um, what the utility or regulatory group does is it is a uh, group of lawyers who represent the whole host of electric utilities, uh, mostly investor owned elect- electric utilities. Like you just mentioned, John, although there are um, a couple of uh, other kinds of utilities in there and uh, or, or that were in there. I, I, it's a bit of a spoiler alert, but um, the utility or regulatory group thankfully disbanded in scandal in, in, the last month actually and i'm happy to kind of walk through what led to that um but maybe I'll, I'll go back to the beginning so the utility air regulatory group was formed by utilities in the late 1970s with basically one express purpose um, it was formed after congress passed the clean air act which is designed to protect americans health and safety from air pollution and uh, that was a scary thing for utilities who thought it might um, you know, limit their ability to to build uh the kinds of power plants and, and other infrastructure that they make profit on. And so um to undermine the Clean Air Act and the EPA, which which writes rules and, and public health standards in accordance with the Clean Air Act, utilities formed this group, UARG. And for the last four decades, UARG has very quietly existed in the shadows trying to undermine and attack uh the Clean Air Act and the EPA's uh, enforcement of the Clean Air Act, some of the kinds of things they do is includes um, mainly litigation. So they, they sue the EPA constantly. Whenever you hear about the EPA getting sued for things like President Obama's uh, Clean Power Plan or other public health and safety rules, including from past Republican presidents as well as Democratic presidents, Usually the plaintiff in those lawsuits is the utility air regulatory group. What makes this really nasty and and part of what the Energy and Policy Institute, what we focused on and trying to expose is not only do these companies pay uh, the lawyers who who, uh, constitute UARG to file lawsuits that result in the public being less safe and healthy, um, but they're actually doing that with our money. Um, So I'll I'll give an example. One of the rules that Utility Air Regulatory Group has tried to kill um, is commonly known as the mercury rule. And it it basically exists to keep mercury that's emitted when we burn coal out of our water and the fish we eat and and our air. And the reason that's important is mercury is a really powerful neurotoxin, um, gets into kids' bloods and into their brains and affects their ability to um, you know, for their brains to develop appropriately. Um, that's that's really widely accepted and nobody kind of disputes that. But that's, uh, you know, not good enough for utilities who wanted to keep burning coal throughout the last several decades. So they sued to try to stop and weaken that rule from taking place. And And the money that they used to do that was actually coming out of a couple of cents at a time coming out of your electric bills every month. So you would think that you know, since these companies are paying the URG lawyers to protect their shareholders' profits, that their shareholders at least would have to pay for that. And, you know, in a world where, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of control over what how companies are able to spend their money to influence politics, um, you know, there might not be a lot we could do to stop that. But in fact, it's even worse than that. These uh, monopoly utilities very quietly, when they go to their regulators at the state level, and they ask for all the money they need to operate their utility. So that's supposed to be for things like, you know, trimming trees next to power lines so we don't have outages, you know, building uh, infrastructure, paying linemen to, to um, you know, walk the power lines and, and, and do maintenance and keep us safe. When they uh, want to recoup those costs, they have to go to regulators and get permission to do that in a rate case. Well, what utilities would do is, you know, in the fine print of those rate cases, they would slip in all the money they were paying the lawyers at the utility or regulatory group, which means that um, for many electric utility customers around the country, every time they pay their bill every month for the last four decades, potentially, a few cents out of that bill was going to pay lawyers to sue the EPA um, to, you know, attack rules that are designed to keep us safe. So utilities are, you know, they're trying to make us less healthy and they're using our money to do it. And unfortunately, there's not a lot that the average person can do about it. It's very difficult and expensive to intervene in one of those rate cases. You usually need a lawyer to do it. You know, that's the only way that, that we can challenge that. And that, John, it goes back to your original point about the problems with having these monopoly electric utilities. You know, if if Facebook or Google is suing to stop clean air rules or, or Walmart is, at least you have the, the choice to, go take your business somewhere else. Um, But we don't have that choice with electricity if we have a monopoly utility.
0: All right, we're going to take a short break. Uh, When we come back, we're going to talk to David about how Energy and Policy Institute helps Americans understand monopoly power. How do they find out this stuff? Uh, And also to understand a little bit more about why state regulators haven't been able to stop companies from doing this, as we've already learned a little bit about, and what opportunities we have to intervene to do something about the way monopoly utilities are using our resources. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Building Local Power with David Pomerantz, Executive Director of Energy and Policy Institute. Hey, do you think you'd be a great guest on Building Local Power? Are you dying to tell Chris Mitchell what he could do better? Wanted to just share some love? Email us at podcast at ilsr.org. You can also send your love with a small donation. If you listen to other podcasts, you might hear about a mattress company or a meal delivery service. The Institute for Local Self-Reliance is a national organization that supports local economies, so we don't accept national advertising. Instead, please consider making a donation to ILSR. Not only does your support underwrite this podcast, but it also helps us produce all of the resources, from reports, to podcasts, to interactive maps we make available for free on our website. Please take a minute to go to ilsr.org donate. Any amount is welcome, and sincerely appreciate it. That's ILSR.org slash donate. We also value your reviews on Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much. Now let's get back to our conversation with David about shining a light in the dark behaviors of monopoly utility companies. Okay, we're back. David, let's talk a little bit about what Energy and Policy Institute does to help Americans understand monopoly power. How do you find out all this stuff about UARG or whatever these secretive groups that utilities are part of, or the way that they are spending their money or our money uh, to undercut this stuff? How does Energy and Policy Institute understand this?
1: Well, you know, John, a lot of the answers are hiding in plain sight. And I think, you know, um, one of the most, I think, powerful things, unfortunately, that utilities have done over the years is kind of convinced us all not to pay attention to them. You know, their hope is, as long as they basically can keep the lights on most of the time, which they don't always do, but as long as they can do that relatively well, um, and as long as they can avoid shocking us with really high bills, which sometimes they still do that too, but they you know certainly try not to, then we'll mostly look in the other direction. But they've avoided, I think in the last couple of decades, at least a lot of the scrutiny that um, other polluting industries like the oil industry or the coal industry have gotten. And so that's what, Energy and Policy Institute is trying to change. E- even though the the regulators that are supposed to make sure they are not gouging customers and hurting the environment don't always get everything right, um, in the process they do require utilities to put a whole lot of stuff on paper. And one of the things we do is, you know, comb through that and try to find examples of where utilities are are um, hurting people, hurting their customers, hurting the environment. Um, and just try to translate that for people. You know, a lot of this stuff is is pretty wonky. Um, it can be pretty technical. Uh, we are not, you know, technical um, experts the way that, um, I think, you know, John, you, you are a great resource on a lot of this stuff and, and there are many others out there, but we have tried to sort of carve out a role for us to to explain uh, what utilities are doing and then and then look for the proof. Um, so, you know, we're, we're looking in their regulatory filings, we're doing a lot of things that regular people could do if they have an interest in doing it. And that includes, you know, looking at how uh, utilities spend money in political campaigns. You know, we're looking at how they lobby, which there's often a paper trail of. Um, so we're we're trying to use every kind of public source of information that we can to document utilities behavior and then just explain it to people, hopefully in a way that makes sense.
0: I want to come back to something that you were talking about public utilities commissions, public service commissions. I think it was in our Arizona example where unfortunately you were describing how the utility has had a a lot of influence over picking the commissioners that are supposed to oversee it. All the states that have monopoly utilities have some sort of body, public body like this, a public service commission, et cetera. Why haven't these regulators stopped utilities from all these anti-customer practices? You know, for example, there was uh, a lot of uh, what EPI was covering, I think it was last year, was around Dominion Energy in Virginia, which has been up to any number of hijinks around uh, not refunding money to customers and then when they were supposed to refund money, I think they said something like, "Well, how about instead of refunding it, we'll just spend it again and make a profit on it a second time." Why aren't people at the Virginia Public Utilities Commission or Public Service Commission stopping this kind of behavior?
1: The first thing that people need to understand is in their state how those uh, public utility commissioners are chosen. And there are a few ways. Um, In most states, they're appointed by a governor. Then there are uh, about a dozen states where uh, the utility commissioners are elected by the public. And then there are a couple of states that have you know some different things going on. So Virginia is one that you named where and and this is relatively unique, uh, the public utility commissioners are actually chosen by the state legislature. And to your example, unfortunately, over the years, Dominion has for many years running been the very top campaign contributor to legislators in Virginia. And that's writ large, but if you look at the leaders of the important committees in the Virginia legislature, Dominion just gives them, has given them hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars um, to basically buy their compliance. And, you know, that puts a lot of pressure on those legislators when they go ahead and select a utility commissioner to make sure they're picking somebody that Dominion approves of and that Dominion thinks will help them with their profit. Um, But in all these places, you know, once you understand that, it does mean that people have a chance to do something about that. So um, in states where public utility commissioners are elected, people can obviously vote, but they can also organize to make sure that the candidates running for the public utility commission are not taking money from utilities, that they're not taking money from you know groups that are funded by utilities and, and try to obscure that. And in the states where governors pick public utility commissioners, You know, people can make sure that the the choices that those governors make becomes a a political issue for them. Um, I would just say, you know, in most cases, these monopoly utilities tend to really get what they want when the public doesn't pay any attention. And when people start to pay attention to what they're doing, to their political influence, um, to their agenda, which, you know, has been anti-energy democracy anti-distributed solar. And in most cases, although this, I should say, you know, this is starting to change for a few utilities that are moving in a different direction, um, their agenda has been pro fossil fuel. And so the more people pay attention to that and and make, make it into an issue for their leaders and their politicians, and sometimes for the regulators themselves directly, um, you know, the, the harder it becomes for utilities to do what they're doing under cover of darkness. And the greater, um, you know, the chances that people will get regulation in the public interest. You know, for, for these public utility commissions, I think kind of the first thing we need to do is is put the public back into the public utility commission. Um, and thankfully, you know, even in the last few months, we've seen some, some real progress there and some commissions that are starting to do a better job holding utilities accountable in the public interest.
0: Do you have, I, I think, David, it would be really nice to be able to share one of those examples here so people get a sense for, hey, if I actually do something in this space, there is a precedent that uh, things will improve.
1: So I've got a couple of examples of that. I mean, one is, is in Arizona where um, they have an elected utility commission and a commission that has been really the epicenter of a whole lot of scandal over the last four or five years. Um, the company who I mentioned earlier, Arizona Public Service, uh, we recently learned, spent over $10 million in um, dark money. money They basically routed through groups that they tried to keep secret back in 2014 to pick the very regulators that made those anti-rooftop solar decisions. A couple of years later, they also raised rates on all of APS's customers there's been a backlash to that, which is really good news. And so in this most recent election cycle in 2018, there was so much scandal around APS's influence that for the first time in the last three elections, APS actually set that election cycle out. They didn't spend money on their, the candidates that people assumed were their preferred candidates. And I think the reason they did that is because there had been so much scandal and their, their reputation had become so toxic that republicans and democrats kind of didn't want to be associated with the monopoly utility anymore and in the wake of that election several of the regulators on the arizona corporation commission including people from both parties a republican and a democrat have really um, tried to bring some more accountability into play so you know i don't agree with everything that those commissioners have done but they have tried to force aps to account for its political activity over the years. They're trying to crack down on ha- how APS is spending its ratepayers' money on politics. And, um, you know, they are starting to explore ways where they can uh, challenge a lot of the things that APS is, has, has done in recent years that are really bad for customers, including trying to build gas plants that its customers don't need. You know, I think some of the commissioners are taking a look at um, issues around rooftop solar and interest in doing that. So other commissioners are interested in looking at how they could bring more competition into Arizona. So, um, you know, that's a place where, uh, unfortunately, APS still does have a lot of political power, but there have been changes afoot, I think. And part of that is because um, a lot of people have, you know, taken action and organized and and made these issues more political. Um, another example is in South Carolina, where one of the utilities unfortunately spent billions and billions of their customers' dollars uh, basically to build a very expensive hole in the ground. And um, they were trying to build a nuclear power plant that spiraled completely out of control. It's something they never should have built in the first place. Um, and they actually had to abandon the project even after they'd spent multiple billions of dollars. In the fallout of that scandal, there were new public utility commissioners who um, have been appointed and elected. Um, they are looking at the monopoly utilities in South Carolina with a much more critical eye. Um, in the case of another utility, Duke Energy, that was asking for really obscene rate hikes on customers. They were asking for to increase the, the fixed part of customers' bills dramatically in a, in a way that was higher than almost any other utilities around the country ha, has have done. And in response, that public utility commission, first of all, they said no to many of those asks. They also actually cut Duke Energy CEO's salary significantly, at least the amount of it that was paid by South Carolina ratepayers, in a way to sort of send a signal to that company that some of the things they'd been doing in the past to try to take advantage of their customers were not going to work anymore under this new um, public utility commission. So we we have seen. You know a number of uh, utility regulators around the country in the last few months who are really taking um, a more uh, critical approach and really, like I said before, trying to put the public interest back into the public utility commissions.
0: Well, I was thinking as you were talking, David, about the work that you're doing, and it puts me in mind of the slogan the Washington Post has adopted in the last couple of years about democracy dies in darkness, and that a lot of what you're doing is uncovering the things uh, that have hidden in darkness, whether it's UARG or or these other things. Um, You've already alluded to this a little bit in terms of what we can do about this. You 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 mentioned uh, paying attention, getting people to pay attention, holding politicians accountable for when they're involved in the appointment or election of the regulators that oversee utilities, whether that's gubernatorial candidates, uh, whether it's state legislatures or in the case of many states where commissioners are elected. Um, do you have other suggestions for things that people should do in order to help confront this monopoly problem in the utility sector?
1: I do. And I, I think I have a really, what will hopefully be a very hopeful message for your listeners and, and fans of energy democracy uh, on this front in terms of what they can do. You know, there's a lot that is happening where let's say if you're, if you, if your concerns are driven by um, environmental concerns or climate change, which is you know, why I come to this work. Um, You know, there's a lot that's happening in in Washington, D.C. and in the Trump administration that is very concerning, obviously, and it can kind of be hard to know where to start. I mean, how do you have an influence over, as one person, over what's happening in Congress or in the White House? Um, I don't think that's always true, though, at the state level. So these public utility commissions, they're pretty sleepy. I mean, they, they, they meet all the time the public does not always show up and um you know call me naive but i actually think if people are engaged in that process what we've seen in recent months and years is that you actually you can make a big difference there and so i have a couple pieces of advice the first is just find out the basics about the public utility commission in your state um where is it who who serves on it uh, how are they appointed and then Look for ways that you can get involved. You know, this is, this is, um, can be hard stuff and somewhat technical. And I think it's probably not, uh, you know, the easiest thing in the world is one person to just get engaged in. But there are tons of groups. There are consumer advocacy groups. There are citizen utility boards. There are uh, many environmental groups that have ways of engaging in that public utility commission process. They can, tell you when there are hearings that you can show up to, to testify, you know, they can, they can offer some guidance about how you can make a difference there. And I'll give one more plug about um, a very specific idea that we've seen really take off in the last year or so. John, you talked before about uh, Dominion Energy in Virginia, and that's one place where we've seen uh, one of the amazing responses to Dominion's political power has been a movement to ask, uh, people running for office in Virginia, um, to sign a pledge that they would not accept campaign contributions from, uh, monopoly utilities. I mean, there are a lot of people who feel like, uh, that our, our campaign finance system is generally broken. And, you know, politicians probably shouldn't be taking money from any corporation. And I'm sympathetic to that view, but monopoly electric utilities is a great place to start. You know, these are their monopolies. Like I said before, they're companies that people have no choice but to patronize. They have unbelievable political power right now, and you know they have really high stakes in terms of um, you know they're very heavily regulated, and it's really important to them who holds office. So it's it's the perfect place to start um, to try to get money out of politics, and we've seen unbelievable success with that effort. Uh, Virginia is a great example where over a dozen of the freshman legislators who were elected in 2017, in November 2017 in Virginia, signed a pledge that they would not accept any money from monopoly electric utilities, and more, including several incumbents have signed that pledge since then. And we're now reaching the point in Virginia where there's assumed pressure as soon as anybody announces they are running for any office in the state that they're gonna be asked and will need to have a pretty good answer for whether they are going to take uh, campaign contributions from monopoly electric utilities. That's that's an effort that I think can happen and work in any part of the country. It's completely nonpartisan. I think people who are Democrats, Republicans, and anywhere in between those, all would probably agree that these um, monopoly companies should not be allowed to buy our politicians. And so that'd be one specific idea that um, you know we've been very encouraged to see catch on, and, and I would encourage folks to check out.
0: So we often end this podcast, David, with asking our guest for a reading recommendation. It doesn't have to be topic-related, although it can be. But is there anything good that you've read recently? It could be a magazine article. It could be a book that you would like to recommend.
1: I'll take the easy out first and Certainly um, encourage folks to check out our website um, for the Energy and Policy Institute, which is energyandpolicy.org, all one word. Um, we've got lots of great articles there about monopoly utilities, their political power, and their efforts to undermine the public interest. And then, in terms of a magazine article on this topic, there's a, a great one that was in uh, The Nation last month. And the headline to search for is The Energy Industry's Secret Campaign to Get Us to Build More Power Plants. Um, And it's about how, you know, even as the energy market has changed and actually moved more toward renewable energy, um, Monopoly utilities have deployed these very deceptive scams, essentially, to try to feign public support for the gas plants they want to build. And it's a great article. It's really well documented, investigative reporting. Um, So, yeah, I would encourage folks to check that out in the nation.
0: We'll definitely have links to both those uh, sites, the Nation's article and, of course, energyandpolicy.org on our show page. David, thank you so much for joining me today. Really great to hear about how you are exposing the shenanigans of monopoly utilities and giving people some power to take the power back.
1: Thanks, John. And thank you for all the work that ILSR does.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to Building Local Power. This is John Farrell, ILSR co-director. I was speaking with David Pomerantz, Executive Director of the Energy and Policy Institute, about how utility companies have become so powerful, how they use this power, and what lessons we can learn from David's work to manage monopolies in the rest of the American economy. You can see links to the Energy and Policy Institute and to his recommended article in The Nation on the podcast show page. While you're at our website, you can also find more than 60 past episodes of the Building Local Power podcast and show us some love with a contribution to help cover the costs of producing the podcast. You can also help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. Or just drop us a line at podcast at ilsr.org. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and Hiba Mireille. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. Please join us next time in Building Local Power.